Hey everybody, come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. I am your host, John Cumming. This is episode 115, and we got a terrific show for you this week. We have a uh, an investment panel out of the uh, Canadian Mining Symposium we held in London a few months ago, and of course, uh, you know the markets turned down, uh, especially the base metals since that time. But uh, there's a lot of discussion here about the uh, big picture of investment and. Uh, what's been going on. So uh, there's lots of material uh, that's still worthwhile, and uh, I've chopped it down a bit for the highlights. And if you want the full um, the full show, it is on our YouTube channel. But uh, on this panel, we have as our moderator, Chris Hind. He is the Director of Reports at SNL Metals and Mining. And our panelists are Jeffrey Couch. He's the Managing Director and Head of Investment and corporate banking for Europe of BMO Capital Markets. And then we have Dean McPherson. Uh, people know him in Toronto here. He's the head of business development for global mining at TMX Group. And finally, we have Shay Small. He's the co-leader of global mining at McCartney Tetro. But first, let us thank our podcast sponsors. They are the Grosso Group. That is led by entrepreneur Joe Grosso out of Vancouver. And their website is grossogroup.com. Their three public companies, all focused on Argentina, are Golden Arrow Resources, Blue Sky Uranium, and Argentina Lithium and Energy. And uh, I thought I'd just give a few facts about the lithium picture in Argentina. Uh, it's focused on the, the lithium triangle. That includes parts of northwestern Argentina. And the lithium triangle produces about half the world's lithium, and most lithium in this area is in salt lakes. These are salars. And Argentina produces about 12% of the world's lithium, making it the third largest global producer. Our second sponsor is the Yukon Mining Alliance, and you can go to their website at yukonminingalliance.ca, and they give a terrific uh, roundup of all the different activity going on in the Yukon in mineral exploration development. And they have a terrific Twitter feed at at investyukon, all one word. And just some news out of uh, one of their member gr- companies. We have Rock Haven Resources, and they've just filed their uh, technical report on CDAR about their CLASA uh, if I'm saying that right, Clay's a gold property. That's one of the highest uh, grade gold properties in the Yukon these days, 100% owned. And for our uh, our listeners who aren't familiar with the Canadian capital markets, we have listeners all over the world here. If you do want to find where companies are basically forced to uh, upload all their um, documents to, to the government, the website is called CEDAR, www.sedar.com. And there you can find um, all kinds of um, inter- interesting information about your companies. For instance, you could find the salaries of the uh, executives, which they probably wouldn't put on their own website. But um, 
Anyway, let's take a break, and we'll come back with that panel with Chris, Jeffrey, Dean, and Shay. Okay, we have one last panel discussion, and I'm uh, honored to present our moderator, Chris Hind, who's very well known in the London commodity scene. He is the director of reports for SNL Metals and Mining, and Chris is going to give us uh, a quick little wrap-up of where he sees the markets, then we'll begin in earnest. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Anthony. As Anthony uh, alluded to, this final uh, session has the title, The Current State of the Industry. Is this the best time to invest in minerals since 2024? 2004, I'm sorry. This is just to remind people in the audience, and I'm conscious this is an investment conference, that for the mining industry per se, and I'm a mining engineer, uh, that is the list of the value of mines, uh, mined production last year. Left column is how much was mined, middle column, all in dollars per tonne. Uh, so if you buy diamonds by the ton, it's 535 million. But the important line is the last column. Coal absolutely dominates still, uh, deeply unsexy commodity, of course. Iron ore and copper are the next most important. Gold is the fourth most important metal mined. So for equipment manufacturers, uh, it's all about those top four commodities. After that, from a mining perspective, equipment and the like... They do not matter, and that's not to take away from the battery metals, uh, obviously a huge investment potential, but from the terms of the sale of uh, commodities and equipment, it is only those four commodities. Incidentally, uh, obviously you can have copies of these slides. Uh, they come from the quarterly reports Standard & Poor's does, or S&P Global does. A reminder of where we are, a uh, 10-year price trend, truly horrible for five years. We bottomed in January 2016. It wasn't difficult to call the bottom. We weren't going much lower. I've got lots of graphs that can demonstrate that. And since then, there's been a clear recovery. We also plot global drilling. Uh, these are all the projects reporting drilling. We do it on a monthly basis, but this is quarterly. Uh, good news is uh, we're clearly on an upward trend. Um, this conference comes two weeks too early for the March report. That gets um, um, filed on May the 17th. Uh, you'll see there I circled the, the December quarter for each of the last five years, clearly on an upward trend, but from an extremely low base. Financing, I haven't got time to dwell on this. Suffice to say, it was a truly shocking December quarter after a very encouraging uh, September quarter. I haven't got the numbers yet for the March quarter, but it can only be better. TSX, as you're probably aware, third of total financing. And that's where we are from a market cap. We obviously plot this in real time. That's the 2,500 listed companies. Uh, we hit um, 2.3 trillion at the peak pretty diabolical downtrend, bottomed at 750 billion in January 2016, clear recovery since. January this year was up. We were uh, back to about 1.7 trillion. February and March, awful. We're back down below 1.5 trillion. 
Uh, just to conclude, um, this isn't my work, this is uh, our ratings, guys. If you needed reminding, we're not well rated. There are no mining uh, companies that are rated better than A+. And I didn't look it up, but there's three companies rated D. The mining industry as a whole does not get much investment, uh, um, rate high, very high ratings. The good news is we're still negative outlook, but it's clearly improving. And S&P ratings reckon we're going into the positive territory for the first time since the recession, the bear market started. So I'll turn that slide off, even though it's an encouraging one. A quick introduction to our, our three panelists. On my far right-hand side is Geoffrey Couch, Managing Director, Head Investment and Corporate Banking of Europe, BMO Capital Markets. A lawyer by training, Mr. Couch is also a Bachelor of Business Administration. He joined BMO's European Investment and Corporate Banking team in 2011 to focus on metals and mining and transactions. And he's been in metals and mining investment banking experience. He has about 16 years of experience having previously been head of business development at Eurasian Natural Resources. Before then, Jeff had 15 years of experience with Credit Suisse, Citigroup and Kleinwert Benson. Shia Small, nearest to me, another, uh, sorry, uh, co-leader Global Mining, McCarthy Tetrault, another leading mining lawyer from Canada. Mr. Small serves on McCarthy's executive as international and business strategy and his, this international practice, based in Toronto and here in London, is focused on mergers and acquisitions, private equity, joint ventures, and capital market transactions. And finally, in the middle, Dean McPherson is head of business development, global mining, TMX Group. McPherson is a, a civil engineer by training and spent 10 years managing capital projects for an international diversified mining company and a major international engineering service company. Prior to joining the TSX, Dean worked as an investment banker assisting mining companies to meet corporate finance and growth objectives. He's now responsible for the development and execution of the TMX Group's global strategy for attracting new listings to mining sector. I've got a couple of, of a few questions. Obviously, time's a bit restricted, but uh, I'll address them to, to, to all three of our panelists. And we, we kick off with the question nearest to the uh, title for this panel. Metal prices boomed, as you saw on that slide of mine, from 2004 to the global financial crisis at the end of 2007. Prices then recovered strongly in 2009 and 10, before a five-year bear market that bottomed at the start of 2016. Quite clearly, we're on an upward trend now, but is this a reaction to supply constraints, real or perceived, or to burgeoning demand for metals? Jeffrey, do you want to kick off on it? The obvious is both. The, the supply picture, as we all read and talk about, sorry, the demand picture, as we all read and talk about in the U.S., continues to improve, and you know it, it, it is increasingly difficult to bring uh, significant mining operations separate and apart from the, uh, the gold space, which is a separate category altogether. But for industrial metals, for copper and nickel and all the other metals that are used for industry, it, it's an increasingly difficult task to put uh, profitable mines uh, in jurisdictions that are not, as somebody mentioned, the DRC or, very, or Russia or very, very difficult jurisdictions. So it's a combination of supply and demand. Dean? I agree completely, uh, Jeff. Uh, I think 
it is completely a supply and demand issue, and I think what's different this time around is that the supply side has been constrained for quite some time because of the natural cycle. But uh, I think uh, certainly currently, uh, certainly since the past year or so, the demand has, uh, has uh, changed significantly. And, and as a result, I think uh, demand is, is probably the, the net driver right now with, the, with this uh, constrained uh, supply that we had coming out, which is natural coming out of the downturn. Chair, are you going to agree as well? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I uh, agree with all of that. Uh, you know, I would say what we're seeing, I mean, first thing is on the supply side, it's not clear that they're actually, that it's real necessarily. Some of it is perceived, and, and a lot of it is people looking forward to say, you know, in copper, for example, where are the new mines going to come from, and so on. So that's, that's part of what's driving price increase. The other thing I would say that's driving the price increases are who's playing in the market again. So whereas uh, the strategics were out for many years, um, for the most part they're back. Uh, they're, they're back in you know, varying degrees of how back they are, but you know, just, you know, you're, you're seeing it in your practice as well, I'm sure, that a lot of our retainers now are from strategics who years ago were doing divestments. And that was sort of the, the you know, that was, that was the only game in town to we are looking actively at acquisitions across the board. And you're seeing some of them come out and do it. That's playing into it. I think one of the things interesting that's different or a changing dynamic that we've seen at BMO Capital Markets, and again, may not be as technical a response as you're looking for, but don't ask for a technical response from a banker. But, <laughs> You know, we're seeing new participants on the investment side of the equation. You take a Brookfield, for example, or you take the auto companies, or there, there's an increasing number of industrial conglomerates that are becoming very concerned or at least thinking through their business model about how to get in this industry or how to at least secure supply if they're not at least going to, you know, own their own mining operations. But you know, um, that was not, that didn't exist a decade ago. And is that being led by concerns out of the states? Because certainly in the European Union, there's a big move for more secure supply as well. I mean, is, are those the two blocks that are leading the... Yeah, I think so. I think, I think th there's no doubt the U.S. economy is part of the equation. Sure. I, I think you're seeing that all over the place, yeah. actually. I mean, you clearly have seen it from China that has been active for quite a few years in securing supply and commodities that they look, they look to as long-term strategic commodities. So they've been going in and obviously everyone knows they've been active in Africa and a lot of places where a lot of other people, or at least the strategics, haven't been active. You're also seeing it, as the example you just gave, you had, you had SoftBank, the Japanese group, just did the uh, Namaska deal. And you know that was a 9.9% deal with, uh, I think it's 20% offtake if I'm off memory. And that, that's a security of supply issue. So we are definitely seeing more of that. The other thing that you're seeing more of, I actually think there's more activity on the private equity side in the last 12 months than there has been for a long time before that. There's always been a ton of talk about when private equity is coming. It actually has been coming. It's more on the smaller side of the market. Um, but you do see EMR, for example, in uh, Australia doing some rather big deals. You see, um, you know, many of the private equity groups Ryan, are actually... Yeah, yeah, they're... Ryan's on Fund 3, Ryan's all of the spaces, everywhere in the room knows they're all in gold space. Yeah. Uh, uh, Appian do Fund 2, so, yeah, but again, that, I don't know how much it's supply and demand. Yeah. There, there, are, there are other people in the space now on the yeah. finance I think, I think it's tied into yeah. supply and demand. It's uh, the, the whole 
global growth, the economic growth globally uh, certainly has taken off over the past uh, year or so. Uh, all the forecasts are being exceeded. And so, yeah, I think everybody is just responding to the global uh, demand for, for metals and commodities in, in general. So is the um, asset values between projects in secure countries and less secure countries, is that, is that increasing, the differential price between projects? You know, for example, if you've got a project in Cornwall as opposed to in the DRC, are we seeing that, that being rated differently? It's a very good question, and I might have answered the question differently pre the latest drama with Bristow, Glasenberg, and Friedland. Because, you know, even in, and I know it's a favorite mantra, safe jurisdictions, but even in Spain, the United States, Quebec is a slightly different, Quebec is probably one of the most progressive territories or regions in the world in terms of putting their own capital to work and supporting the mining industry. But whether it's Australia, whether it's uh, parts of the US, whether it's Spain, you know, they all have jurisdictions that can change the maths on you and change uh, the licensing arrangement. Now, what we saw in the DRC with a serious response from some of the most influential people in the mining industry that has frustrated some of the most serious people in the mining industry. Yeah, I think I think there's a, there's an asset value. Uh, those all Glencore hasn't been hit as hard, although Katanga today has hasn't helped. But but yeah, no, there there definitely uh, there's an asset differentiation linked to jurisdiction for sure. Russia, etc. Do you notice that on the TSX as a matter of interest? Uh, Sorry? Do you notice on the TSX companies being valued differently depending on where their assets are? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that hasn't changed. Uh, I think that's always been the case, as, as Jeff referred to. You know, the safe jurisdiction clause is, is, is well used. And that's, that's, I think, more important nowadays. Uh, certainly we've seen investors flee from what they consider to be high-risk uh, zones. Uh, what we have noticed, though, is that bec- uh, investors tend to go back, certainly in our markets, uh, and that's one of the things we pride ourselves on in Canada, is when it comes to natural resources, uh, both mining and oil and gas, to be frank, investors, uh, because of the depth of knowledge and experience that we have in this market, investors, they will go away from uh, flare-ups, shall we say, like the DRC, for instance, and West Africa a few years ago. But after uh, walking away a couple of years, when things calm down, they do return. And that's, I think, a key differentiator. That leads into... Oh, sorry. Yeah, another differentiator you touched on briefly at the start is it's not just jurisdictional, but it's the stage of the project. You know, if you have a brownfield project in a safe jurisdiction, in a highly sought-after commodity, I mean, as, as most of us know, the valuations are out of this world sometimes. And on the flip side, if you have a greenfield project, even in a safe jurisdiction, where there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, permitting risk, social license risk, etc. Um, they still struggle on the valuation side. So that that you have, you've seen the valuations really move up on the one side. So even the strategics sit there and go, how am I going to do a copper deal? Like, I'll tell you the one. Th- yeah. I'll tell you the one thing that hasn't changed as much as I would have. Well, I did predict a few years ago, and it hasn't happened. Is that in the diamond industry, you definitely get diamonds with the premium when they're sold locally. Canadian diamonds, for example, are worth much more than diamonds in out of the Congo. And we started seeing that in gold a few years ago, and Welsh gold famously is worth a lot more than gold anywhere else because it's, it's, uh, it's given to the royal family. 
Do you see any more likely the companies, particularly in diamonds and gold, starting to brand their gold because it is in extremely safe areas? So the Canadians start buying Canadian gold, or is that just not happening? It has in diamonds, but it hasn't in gold. No, we haven't seen that at all. No, no. no it's probably just the Welsh because they've they've <laughs> they've locked onto a way of making money. <laughs> You know, one thing we are seeing that's new is you're seeing blockchain applied to gold, yeah. and, and that will be branded. And, and it'll be interesting to see which brand survives. Well, is, is it's the blockchain that'll allow you to do this, and it's certainly in, di in, in diamonds, the local populations like to say, my diamond is Canadian, and it hasn't happened in gold. Anyway, that, yeah. I digress, but it leads on quite well to the second question I had in mind, that as I showed on that, well, I, the, January was a particularly good start to the, to the year for mining and most prices and equity prices went up. But politics finally leaked into the markets um, in March and it was an extremely poor month. And, I mean, obviously mainly President Trump. But politics generally is in the market now. Was that a blip or is politics now driving investor sentiment? It seems to be in London rather than supply and demand fundamentals. You guys go first. I think... Uh Certainly, investor sentiment has always been influenced by politics. I think uh, or the times have changed over the past uh, almost two years now. Since 2016, politics has become a lot uh, more visible or louder, if you will. And so I think from where we, where we sit, we're seeing uh, March being more of a pause, a uh, time to, to digest news that often comes in the middle of the night via uh, Twitter, uh, investors tend to take a um, step back and, and to digest that information. So yes, uh, politics is being uh, a, a larger factor, a larger influence on investor um, reaction uh, in addition to supply and demand. And I think that reaction is more visible now, only so uh, not that it was not there before. We talked about uh, uh, jurisdiction risk before that a large part of that uh, was due to politics. Yeah. So, I think a lot of it comes down not so much to what is actually going on in in politics and whether it's a Trump, you know, tw his Twitter account or yeah. actually the the trade sanctions or or even what's going on with Russia. It, more of it is the uncertainty that it creates, and it's sort of the what's next, how bad can this get. And where that plays into is when you actually look at the numbers on demand, they're really actually not that bad, or on, on supply. Where they're bad is on people committing capital to make investments. And that's where I think the long, that, that is the, the, the hard part about all this politics is, are, you know, are people going to invest if they don't know what the, what the world's going to look like for them? You know, and how they calculate their IRRs and so on. And th that is probably the most problematic part of this. Because you could juxtapose that with price cycles. I mean, I, I bore people witless about the, pro the biggest single problem for the mining industry is, is, I think, price cycles. In that I know any number of good potential students haven't gone into mining because they, you know, they've just hit the bear market and it's going to go on for five years. And general investors... You know, they can't possibly invest in, in companies that, however attractive they feel, if they can see a, a price cycle moving against them. And is that, are we doomed to go through that? I mean, I'm coming up to retirement, unfortunately, we're just entering a, a, a bull market. But, you know, five year bear market, why would anyone go into the industry in it, you know, if it's a cyclical industry? And why are we ever going to get general investors back when they're facing such a cyclical industry? 
is there anything that can be done, or is it we just doomed to go through companies over-expanding, ex producing too much, and we hit the next downturn? We had the uh, highest portion, I, I don't have the stats with me, but we get all the stats, uh, at our metals and mining conference in February, we had the largest portion of generalist investors we've ever had, and that included from all the significant asset managers. So, you know, we've seen a, a, a tangible interest from generalist investors in the sector globally, but generalist investors, especially if they're from grown-up, mature U.S. asset managers or global asset managers, they need a track record. They need to have met the CEO three times over two years. You know, there, there's a, it's not an it's it's very different than uh, hedge funds or uh, smaller cap investors. So. I, we're quite optimistic about generalists in this space taking a five-year view. Right, right. That's less the experience, I suspect, isn't it? Everywhere, I don't know. Um, I don't, is same in Toronto, you've got the general funds in... Yes, yes, yeah. it, yeah, I, I completely agree with Jeff. Uh, we are seeing a, a strong interest from general investors as well. And, uh, you know, it's uh, that deep dive into quality of management, quality of asset, and a track mm. record of, uh, of uh, delivery but, is there. But it's clearly still challenging for the junior end of the market, isn't it? I mean, uh, what's your outlook for activity on particularly your exchange, but exchange generally? Is it more alternative finance, finance from the industry? Because it looks to me as if the public's gone away. The, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting point. Uh, Last year was pretty significant for us uh, in terms of the market. Uh, you know, Q4 last year we saw uh, IPOs returning to the marketplace. We had uh, three huge IPOs last year in Nexa, Eurocopper, and Titan, uh, base metal plays, uh, South American names, uh, except Titan, which is New York based. But we saw three big IPOs raising almost a billion dollars uh, uh, last year on our exchange. Nexa, which was the largest part of that, was, did a dual list in, in New York as well. But it was significant because we hadn't seen a significant IPO in mining uh, in the markets, uh, I believe, since 2012. So that was significant. And as we all know, IPO, IPOs are, 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 are significant in, turn, in terms of signaling a change in the marketplace. Uh, we also saw an, in, an increase last year in the mining sector in interlisting or dual listings that are uh, companies, mining companies that are listed in a, either in Australia or on, on, in, in London here, uh, looking to enter the North American market and came listing on, on the Toronto Stock Exchange or the or TSX Venture. So the Q4 last year was very good, very encouraging, and uh, talking to all our partners, they were extremely busy, the busiest that they've been. In, in five years or so. So 2018 started out very well. As you mentioned, uh, in March, there was a, a blip. It slowed down a bit with, with everything that happened, with all the news that came out of, uh, out of the White House. Things slowed down a bit. As, as, as the interview on the fireside uh, conversation went earlier, we haven't seen retail investors, uh, the public, yeah. enter the marketplace yet, regardless, uh, which, is, which I don't think is that unusual. I think it's more significant this year because of uh, two, two issues, uh, that's cannabis and blockchain, I believe. I think a lot of the retail investors, which are often the, the risk capital in the marketplace, uh, which supports the junior and development stage uh, in the sector, in the mining sector, have been somewhat distracted by the, by the 
the, 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 the cannabis and blockchain yeah. phenom. Yeah. Uh, so I expect, uh, uh, certainly a popular view, is that um, the cannabis, for instance, blockchain to a lesser extent, because a lot of retail investors are having a hard time understanding blockchain, but cannabis certainly... I'm uh, having a hard time understanding it. It's a big <laughs> distraction. Uh, and it's... it's uh, as far as mining is concerned and, and, and investors returning to the market, that risk capital, I think we have about a year or so because uh, cannabis has sort of run wild, uh, untamed. Uh, you have companies with 50 million revenue trading at a billion. Do, the, billion yeah, do you think the, indus cap? the industry generally and exchanges particularly have done enough to explain the mining industry to, 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 to retail investors? I ask because I do a series of explaining mining to, to non-miners. And without exception, I struggle to explain deposits and grades and how grades, deposits flex depending on the metal price and so grades change and it just blows people that it's not just what you're told, it changes with time. And these guys are expecting to invest in, company, in junior companies and they don't actually get the basics of the whole industry. Not convinced there's enough training going on that explains it to the retail world before they invest in juniors. I don't in know if it's different in... The Canadian banks and the Canadian investment culture is slightly unique on that equation where most of our product goes a minimum of 30% retail and it's partially the way the Canadian banking system is structured and they all, all of the Canadian banks have broker-dealers and have a, a retail conduit and a research platform so that, in particular, high net worth, but generally the aggregators of retail have access to that research. So I have to say it works fairly well, but it only gets put through the retail system if the institutional system is working. You know, we, we can't, the, the retail doesn't support any of those three public offerings that you mentioned. It has to be supported by the institutional market. The UK market is, it doesn't have the same platform no. for retail. And, right. and right. Okay. And, and I, and I, I, I share your, it's a highly technical industry that's uh, not for the weak-hearted, right? Talk, talking of technical, Dean, we were talking earlier and you said there's a wide divergence between the bid and ask on M&A valuations for good assets. Uh, can you give the, the audience some idea of the strategies that you're seeing companies pursue for M&A in the current market? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, one of the things we're seeing is, you know, on good assets, valuations are you know, the, the differential is, is pretty large. And we have lots of clients who are, you know, obviously they still want to participate, they want to have access to resources, but they can't possibly take some of these valuations to their boards and get it through, because from a capital allocation point of view, they don't want to get killed by their shareholders. So things that we're seeing a lot more of, uh, which I don't think the strategics typically would have done before, as you've seen, you know, partnership is now, a very important element of, of many of the strategics where, the, and, and they really believe it in, in the sense that they want to partner with people on joint ventures and other arrangements to, to create value, not only for themselves, but, but for everyone. That is an area where there has been quite a lot of activity and you've seen some very interesting joint ventures that have been done over time, including uh, some in South America where, you know, Tech and Gold Corp took two assets, put them together, where individually they might not have been as strong, but together they were a stronger package. I think you're gonna see a lot more of that. The other thing we're seeing is people are getting their heads around minority positions more. 
uh, whether it's in the public company itself, it's in a joint venture, and then it's linked to taking offtake or, or you know, so, something like offtake, streaming or whatever. And the idea is to get access to the underlying economics, to get access to the product, potentially to trade and so on. So, you know, obviously you have Glencore and the other traders who have very, very big uh, marketing books. But I think you'll, you're seeing other people trying to build their books over time as well. More activity in both those fronts where traditional M&A is harder. Okay. I think, and you know, a good example of that is Pierre mentioned earlier uh, uh, London Gold's uh, a recent deal with, uh, with Newmont in, in Ecuador. Newcrest. Uh, sorry, Newcrest, sorry. <laughs> in, in Ecuador. So that's a good, a good example of what you're saying. I think uh, coming out of the, the, the downturn, uh, we're still at the early stage of coming out of that downturn. Investors' minds are still fresh, mm -hmm. and, and majors are, are, are still hesitant of being slapped again for some of the, uh, the large uh, acquisitions mm -hmm. that were done that didn't quite work out very well for investors. Mm -hmm. So there is that uh, caution and discipline that's still in the marketplace. And I think only after you get deep into a recovery, uh, you get to the peak where there's uh, irrational exuberance. I think we're far from that. The, the, the last question I had is, um, which commodities and or companies are best positioned to benefit from this uptrend? I presume battery metals are top of mind, but um, yeah. anything particular? Jeff? Commodity, Ross Beatty invests in. <laughs> oh, I think uh, going back to the supply and demand uh, question that we started out with, you know, uh, the economy is driving uh, uh, the a large part of the demand. And of course, base metals are, are, are the front of that. Uh, copper is always the leader. And we're seeing that in the market as well. As I mentioned, the three IPOs that started us out last in Q4, which we call the return to mining, you know, we're all base metals, right? So we, we expect the, the global e uh, economic performance uh, that's forecasted to, to drive base metals to be a hot sector. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, battery metals, what's happening with that, yeah. with the battery metals, uh, lithium, cobalt, and, and graphite to a, yeah. to a large extent. You know, the other thing you're seeing, and it's, it's, a, it's a related trend, obviously, is, you know, as the world, and, and China in particular, try and get cleaner, if you want to call it that, some commodities are differentiating where they didn't differentiate before. So take iron ore as an example, which usually traded, uh, you know, uh, you know, pellets and and you know certain certain grades of iron ore traded within a tight band. If you look at the chart on iron ore for the last year, there's been a wide divergence between high quality concentrate and pellets, and you know lower quality iron ore. And that's a trend that probably mostly relates to the environmental concerns. And I think you're going to see more of that uh, in other areas as well over time. I think we'd better wrap it up there. I'm getting, uh, there's obviously a lot of thirsty folk in the audience. Um, thank you very much. Please thank the panelists. Thank you. And that does it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it and see you next time. Bye-bye.